In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Every third article these days, it would seem, is about AI. And I'm not going to talk about AI. Only because um, not far down the list of the prevalence of articles out there is about what is the condition of the church? Um, in COVID, coming out of COVID, in the last six to 10 years, in the last 20 years, where is it? Is it, is it a church in decline? If you, if you look at it from a certain set of statistical models, then yeah. If you look at others, you kind of go, eh, that's probably ought to nuance that declaration of its demise. But it's there. And there's one word, in fact, I heard read some, someone cynically, but probably accurately say, usually uh, people declining just means they've just switched political parties. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, I'm not here to talk about that, though. I am here to talk about, though, a word that finds its way into many of those articles, and it's the word deconstructing. People that are uh, uh, scandalized by sometimes what appears to be the political alignment of churches with others, with ideologies, or uh, the failure to protect people that have been harmed, or any number of ways in which corruption and mendacity has found their way into the life of the church. And, and those criticisms are spot on in many ways. But in the, in the wake of that, word like deconstructing comes along. And deconstructing, for those of you that were under a rock for the last five years, is this idea of reconsidering certain core ideas that you have been raised with and revising those ideas and perhaps discarding some of them or just taking on a new frame of them. And that, that word is out there. And it's not something you just sort of hand wave away, but it's there, and you have to consider what they mean by that. There's a, an article that was written by an Aussie um, a few weeks ago in the Australian Broadcasting Company. Her name is Mandy Smith. And uh, she was sympathetic to that point of view, and she wrote an article like, if you're walking away from the church, there's at least three heresies about Christianity you should also leave behind. What's a heresy? A heresy is a... Uh, contrarian opinion to the received doctrine of the church. It's, a, it's an outright, if you start to say that Jesus was just a man, that's a heresy. If you start to say that God is only one, he's only father, but not son and spirit, that's a heresy of the church. So it's a, it's a, it's a contravention of what the church teaches. But she would argue, look, if you're going to walk away, make sure you're not walking away with certain other heresies that you may be unconsciously adopted. And heresy number two is this. Your spiritual development is primarily intellectual. If you think that we're in here mostly to feed your mind with a bunch of facts such that you walk away a smarter sinner, <clears throat> that's a heresy. You want to read a book about the Trinity? Great. You want to read a book about eschatology in the end times? Fabulous. Go for it. I heartily encourage it. If, it. if it deepens your mind, that's great. If it doesn't go anywhere more than that, then you've missed the point. Your spiritual development is not primarily intellectual. It doesn't mean we don't want you to grow an intellectual understanding. Believe me. But it's not mainly that. Last week we mentioned uh, Ben Franklin, who sought to you know, reform his life by the pursuit of virtue, and he used it primarily as an act of will. He would come up with these ideas for what virtue was, and he would try to you know, focus on that each day, and wherever he did poorly, he gave himself a mark. He was trying to develop himself morally. And we argued last week, you know what, there's something to that. But there's something fundamentally flawed about that. Especially when we talk about what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who assists us. And it's not primarily in our intellectual development. It's primarily a development of our own hearts. 
And so last week we gave a broad overview of what we mean by the fruit of the Spirit. And we thought that that idea was so crucial that now for the next few weeks, we want to take that list and give its attention to one or two at a time of those qualities that are spoken of as the fruit of the Spirit. Newsflash, the very first one is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And we want to talk about that. Because that fruit is the hand-waving away of self-obsession, of destruction, and of the obliteration of all things. Love is different. Love is huge. And we have to consider it afresh. And the way we're going to do that is to consider it under three heads. That love is a thing that God commands, that it's also something that God compels, and lastly, it's something that God completes. A love God commands is a love God compels, which is also a love that God completes. And we want to consider that through listening to an excerpt from 1 John. We're in chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. I wonder if you might stand to hear. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there's no fear in love the perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he's a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> the fruit of the spirit is love. Is anybody unclear on the idea? To speak of it, though, as a fruit, is, as we've said already, means that that love does not produce in us. Naturally, we require assistance. The Spirit is at work in us 
to produce that in us. It's not without our participation. We don't just sit there in a chair and go, lay it on me. Ready. There is something to it. There is something to us participating in it. But it's not something that is simply on us to see it manifested in us. And the way in which, part of the way in which the Spirit produces love in us is by a prompting, by a prompting from what you've just heard, by a prompting of command. The first thing we learn about love in this passage is that it is a command of God. Not a, if you get around to it, not a, if it's convenient for you, I said this, you do this. And if you weren't sure, the whole passage is bookended by that idea in verse 7 and verse 21. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 21, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There it is. That's the command if you weren't sure. That shouldn't be surprising if you've been around here for any length of time or had any exposure to Jesus and the church. Because all it is, is parroting and echoing Jesus. In the Gospel of John, which John also wrote, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. All right, have I made my point clear? It's there. It's a command. It's not a surprise. It's an unambiguous, inescapable responsibility. And in this passage, in 1 John 4, we hear love split out in what is the entire current of the whole Bible, to love the Lord and to love one another. That's it. That's our burden. That's his command. It's elementary. But before we go any further into that command, let's pause a second. Let's reflect a moment. The fact that both Jesus and John are emphasizing the centrality of love should at least imply for us one thing. Man, it is not natural to want to do that. He wouldn't have to say it so often if it was just sort of self-evident to us. If it just sort of naturally bubbled up in us. It doesn't. Love is not natural. There is plenty of resistance in us and in this world to make it a priority and Trust me, I know my heart, I know yours. There are plenty of ways in which I can rationalize away the responsibility or the importance of it. The fact that they're emphasizing it should let us all know he has set a very high bar, that it is impossible to reach with our own wisdom and our own impulses. I'd rather give him the stiff arm than to listen. But let's also consider this. To say love, look, I, I, know, I know John and Paul wrote, all you need is love, da, 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 right? Love it, <clears throat> love that song. Uh, it assumes so much. What is that? I can say the word love, and look, I'll be honest, if I ask 14 of you, what is love? You I might get 14 different definitions. It's not everything. Maybe it's more than what we imagined. We have to define it. And we also have to distinguish it from a lot of things that we think is love but isn't. Let's go there just briefly. What is it? Look, uh, if we had backed up one chapter in 1 John 4 to 1 John 3, he kind of outlines what is love, well, or what is not love. Well, let's see, hatred, murder, and closing your hand to your brother's need. That's 
That's the opposite of love. Check. We, none of us would go, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I thought love could be hatred. <laughs> mm. If we wanted, though, to elaborate further on what it means to define what love is, you already heard it demonstrated here in 1 Corinthians 13, the ode to love. We, we spent six or seven weeks a couple of years ago going line by line and theme by theme. What is love? You can, you can order the cassette. It's there. What is it? When you listen to Paul rattle off the outline and the contours of love, you, you realize if he has to say it, then there are plenty of things that rise up so naturally in us that make love very different. If love is patient and love is kind, then what does that mean? Whenever I am impatient or unkind, I'm failing the command. If love is not arrogant, if love is not rude, if love does not boast, if it is not irritable, it is not resentful, what are those, those things that I fail at? That list. Friends, oh my gosh, if you had a video on me for any length of time, you would go, <laughs> I don't think he gets the command yet. If love believes all things and bears all things and hopes all things and endures all things, you have before us, through Paul, through Jesus, a very high bar. Love is like that. Love has its contours in that. And there is such a demand on us to love that it can be to us almost impossible and therefore not worthy of our attention. We give up. So much stands for what love is. Love requires definition, and you could do a lot worse than embrace that definition of what love is. But I will also have to say to us that there are so many things that have the appearance of love that are actually counterfeit versions of it. And you and I gotta grapple with that too. I, I could rattle off any number of occasions in which I, what I think I'm doing is love, it's not love. And look, uh, what we did read from 1 Corinthians 13, all you gotta do is back up a, you know, a paragraph earlier, and, and Paul makes it really clear. There is a version of majestic eloquence that has all the appearances of love, but which is in fact loveless. There is a kind of knowledge and uh, brilliance that, again, one could misconstrue that as love. It's not. And, and even scarier, there's a version of self-sacrifice, which on its face sounds like, yeah, that's love. Friends, all that is is self-promotion masquerading itself as love. And we are all susceptible to it. And we all have stories of probably convincing ourselves that it's love when it's not. Paul distinguishes counterfeit versions of love from the actual version of love. And you know what? We could add to that list. Let me offer you some suggestions about what seems like love in the moment, which in fact is not love. If all you're interested in is seeking and preserving someone's approval of you, you may think it's love. It really has you at the center of it. If you think love is about just trying to secure somebody else's love, that's not love. That's also got you in mind, not them. And perhaps what is, um, perhaps what is most sinister and most subtle is what John says a chapter earlier in 1 John 3. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. <clears throat> Man, it is easy to preach about love. Comparing to love my wife, 
love my kids, love my friends, love my neighbors, that's a different ask. I'd rather just keep the peace sometimes. I'd rather just not rock the boat sometimes. I'd rather just somebody like me sometimes. There's a word that's entered into our vocabulary these days for understandable reasons, and it's not sinister, but it's the word empathy. If you could just be empathetic with somebody, if you could just, that's love, right? But let's be honest with ourselves. How many times is our version of empathy, we seem one, see someone suffering, and we don't like to feel what they're feeling and their suffering? And so what we do for them, we think, is trying to relieve their suffering, but what we're really trying to do is just relieve our own. And that's where empathy runs amok. And it is perhaps the subtlest distortion and counterfeit version of love that I might know. And I'm guilty of it too. Love has a definition. Love has to be distinguished from other things that appear to be love but are not. Love is hard. It's easy to talk about love. It is harder to love those who are in your life and that you have to deal with on a daily basis. And let's just be honest, the hardest part, though, which Jesus spoke of, which we heard referenced again, it's, he says, love your enemies. <laughs> really? Love your enemies, the ones that are hostile to you. Several months ago, I introduced to you uh, an author by the name of James Mumford. I will wait. Ah, different Mumford. <laughs> this guy doesn't even sing. He is uh, got a background in psychology. And if you remember the article that I posted from several months ago, he's, he's got a background in psychology. And he was writing an essay about what he felt like were the limits of psychology. But he wrote the essay from within an institution that he'd been committed for his own mental illness. Talk about an irony, right? He's still writing. Can you believe it? He, he wrote something recently about what is the opposite of love, what is diametrically opposed to love, which wells up in me and wells up in you so easily, and that's rage. Listen to what he says about rage. What is forgotten in fits of rage? Anger forgets that its object is no mere object, no mere thing, no mere item. I forget that the intended target of my wrath is in fact my brother, in anger, you lose sight of the face. You become blind to the stranger's reality, to what remains true about him, to his persistent identity, whatever he has done. You forget that he is still related to you in the most intimate way, that this guy on the tube or this person who has hurt you or this person who bears ill will towards you remains a someone, not a something remains a person, remains a creature of the God who loves in freedom, flesh and blood like I am, but spirit too. Where does he get that? He gets that from Jesus. And the only way forward in beginning what it means to love your enemy is to remember what rage helps us forget. They are not the other. They are not subhuman even if they might be acting to you in ways that are inhuman. Where in the world do we find the strength, the wherewithal, the motivation to love and love that way in the command that both John and Jesus are reminding us of? Where do we get that? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's where we're going in the second part here. We all know that this is a love that God commands, but that love that God commands 
is also a love that God compels. And when I say compel, this is not a Nike, this is not a, a Shia LaBeouf moment saying, just do it, just love. Just get on that. Like, that's your gig, man. Just do it. No. This love that is commanded is also compelled. John is not just giving us a bare command, go do this. I said so, go do it. It's not saying that. Verse 8, listen. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Love, as I said at the top of our service, has its origin in God. It's his being. Love is but the center of all things from before there were things. And in that sense, if you will, I kind of riff on this idea as I meditated upon it, love is on loan to you. It wasn't yours to begin with. You didn't come up with the idea. It's your inheritance. And therefore, it's on loan to you. Um, <clears throat> if you go to the guitar shop and you buy a used guitar, you will appreciate the fact that you invested money in that direction, and therefore you will treat it and think of it in a certain way. But if you get a used guitar from Jeff Beck or Bob Dylan or uh, John Mayer or David Wilcox, you, you have a guitar, you will think of that and use that and care for that differently because of who you know it came from. You and I have to recover the fact that the command to love is in some ways sort of a precious donation that God has given to us that we are to use with care. Because as I said at the very beginning of the service, love is not a given. Read the paper next week and tell me in how many ways you see the things that are happening, the impulses that are at work, the outcomes that have come from it. Tell me if you think love is at the center and behind what's going on. It's not a given. The fact that it's prevalent at all, that's our inheritance from the one who said God is love. Most of the time it's something else at work and too often it's us convincing ourselves that it's love when it's not. Love's not automatic. It is a command but it's compelled. So listen again in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And as he elsewhere said, and this is love, not that we love God, not we are the measure of love, but that God first loved us. What is the mark of someone's deep love for you? What's one mark of that? That they will give to you what is precious to them, which they only have one of. And that storyline finds its way into many storylines. Finds its way into O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. Finds its way into Jim Henson's Emma Daughter's Drug Bond Christmas. We've talked about that not so long ago, right? I mean, you, I could pull you. Tell me a story in which someone has given to another what is precious to them, which they do not have but one of. It's a mark of love. What do we see is the demonstration and manifestation of God's love to us? What's there in verses 9 and 10? In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent what he only had one of, what was most precious to him, and that is a demonstration of love. But he didn't just send the son like, I'm sending you to college, or I'm sending you abroad, or I'm sending you into the armed forces. I'm actually sending you in order for you to solve their biggest problem, and that is the estrangement they have with me because of their sin. And what you will do through your death will solve that. You and I hear that, we go, yeah, 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 they, that's what they always say on Sunday. Great, heard that. Look, I don't, <clears throat> can, I, can I invite uh, you to listen to just a, a brief moment from a film called The Big Kahuna in which these two salesmen that sell industrial products are talking to each other about the relationship with one another and just listen to this moment and, and just pretend like you've never heard that God is love before. <laughs> Do you love me, Larry? What about that on? Well, when I was a kid, uh, there was a Bible verse that I learned. And Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. Are you asking, would I be willing to die for you? guess so. Well, that's pushing things kind of far, Phil. I mean, what situation could possibly come up that I would be called upon to die for you? Beats me. <laughs> well, I mean, what? You're saying, hey, hey, Larry, take a flying leap off the balcony? No, I wouldn't. I don't know who I love. There's a lot of people I like. But love? That's a whole different story. Precisely. I like a lot of people. But love? That's a whole different story. And it's to our peril that we take it for granted. It's just sort of natural. It's not. Look, I don't know if you believe in God or not if you're here this morning. I don't take that as an assumption. And I can't prove to you simply by what I'm saying to you that Jesus is in fact risen from the dead. But of all the things that a faith tradition might find at its core, that it then seeds and forms a culture in a lot of other cultures very different from our own. For of all the things that that tradition might uphold like love isn't it compelling and isn't there something resonant about the idea that what i most need and what i most fail at is love this love he commands is a love he compels his life for ours and john is merely added to by what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does it mean to love one another? The love of Christ controls me. What does it mean that God is love? 
but he died that I might live no longer for myself. The tyranny and enslavement and the obsession of myself, do you know how powerful that is? Do you know how miraculous it is for that to be displaced in you? The late Tim Keller put it this way. To be loved but not known is superficial. To be known but not loved is our nightmare. Only Jesus knows us to the bottom and loves us to the sky. If you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. That's the gospel. That's what you hang your hat on. That's what you've got to meditate on. That's what I've got to meditate on. I let that one, I let that dog off its chain. I, I, need, to get, I need to bring it back. The love God commands is the love God compels. But finally, that love that God compels is a love that also God completes. What? Four times. I know you were counting. You'll, you hear John speak of the word perfect or perfected. And another way of thinking about that is uh, something that has been fulfilled. It's reached its intention. Hydrangea macrophylla starts out as a seed, becomes a plant, and when it reaches full blossom, it's a panoply of colors, and they're beautiful. When the blossom hits, it's reached its perfection. That's what was intended. When we get there, we got to where we wanted. We got to what it was coded into its being, its nature, its essence. When John says that God perfects us in our love, he obviously means in our love for one another, and he also means our love for the Lord. That God perfects our love, meaning what he says in verse 12. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, meaning this. A lot of the times, uh, love, you might think, is kind of like taking out the trash. Uh, check. Did that, right? Um, and some days it feels like that. It's not that, though. It's more than that. And if we always think it is just sort of like taking out the trash, we miss the nature of love. Love is more like the satisfaction you derive if you're a gardener to finally see your hydrangeas blossom in all their fullness. There is a joy in seeing love perfected. And the way he means by perfected is this. The Lord intended for us to be loving and sent his son in love for us so that what? So that we would love one another. Bloom, blossom. Beautiful. Love is perfected in us when it starts to come from us because it's been compelled in us by him. That's the nature of love. Anybody that says, I love God and hates his brother, bruh, that's a lie, he said. Love that reaches the place of one another, that's something else. But he also says that love is perfected not just in when you love one another. Love is perfected when you can face life and death without fear of judgment. That's what love intends. That's what he intends by his love. What did his love do? It sent his son to turn away 
whatever kept us from the Lord in our sin, in our being, in our corruption, not just in our deeds, but from in our heart. In that is love. But what does that love intend? That I might not be afraid. Everybody's afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. Depends on the moment. This love is meant to reassure us that in our belonging to him, we may have confidence in one day being able to behold him and without fear because that we have been covered. It's the mark of his love. It's the mark he intends by love. And what does that perfection finally look like? It's when we love for love's sake. For love's sake alone. Not for what we get out of it, but because of what love requires of us. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she had a sonnet. Sonnet 14. Listen, just an excerpt from that sonnet. If thou must love me, let it be for naught, except for love's sake only. Don't say I love her for her smile, her looks, her way of speaking gently for a trick of thought that falls in well with me and assuredly brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. For these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or change for thee, and love so wrought may be unwrought so. Yeah, Tolkien wanted his friend's poetry to be written because it spoke of truth. Yeah, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sonnets ought to be published because that's true. Yours and my version of love is so contingent. What you do for me is why I love you. Mm. A perfected love loves for love's sake because of what God's love has done for us. In that is love. Love for love's sake. Love not tied to the worth or the dignity of the object. Love not trying to secretly afraid that if I don't love you in a certain way that you won't love me back. That's not love. Love for love's sake. Okay, how do we land the plane? I need help from Mr. Rogers. The obedience to this command and this sermon is this. Love one another. Oh. Before you can, though, I want to invite you to a little analogy, a practice. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood came out in 2019. Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. And there's a moment when this journalist who is, you know, frames up the whole story named Lloyd Vogel works for Esquire, was coming to do a biopic or do an essay on Mr. Rogers. He, he's a man who has daddy issues, deeply estranged from his father. His father wronged him in many ways. He doesn't know what to do with that, and it's affected him. It's marked him. And here in a moment, in of all places, a Chinese restaurant, Mr. Rogers wants to talk to Lloyd Vogel about what he sees. But this is not just a scene that, as a moviegoer, you are meant to observe. It's actually something more than that. Bill was right. You love people like me. What are people like you? I've never met anyone like you in my entire life. Broken people. I don't think you were broken.
I know you are a man of conviction. A person who knows the difference between what is wrong and what is right. Try to remember that your relationship with your father also helped to shape those parts. He helped you become what you are. Would you do something with me, Lloyd? It's an exercise I like to do sometimes. We'll just take a minute and think about all the people who loved us into being. I, I can't do that. They will come to you. Just one minute of silence. Thank you for doing that with me. I feel so much better. Any of you could tell me any number of stories about the way in which this world has left you less. But even to commit yourself to that little mental exercise, I would dare say there are probably faces and voices and moments more than you can count that accounts for why you're even sitting here this morning. They have loved you into being. Love one another, but borrow from the analogy that you just saw demonstrated and invited into. The only way we will love one another is if we take moments as we need them to reflect on all God has done to love us into eternal being. And maybe the strength and the will to do as he asks will find its way into the deepest places. That's why we're coming to the table. To do as you just saw, but in real time with the way in which he has loved us. This is his way. This is his will. This is his heart for us. Let's pray.
Lord, as we come to this table, we would ask you to overcome what is in us, to mistrust or to reject the possibility that there is a love that is stronger than death and stronger than everything that we are afraid of in this moment that holds us and leads us and strengthens us and convicts us. Would you help us now to receive this worthily, not as those who are sinless, none of us can claim such, but as those who are confident that your love is stronger than even our sin. In Jesus' name.